Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Good day, wherever you are listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. And our cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. On the phone with us is our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Hello, Dieter. <laughs> Dieter. Cox off guard there. Uh, that hello? Worked. Hello, Dieter. All right. Well, welcome and uh, thanks for joining us again. Dieter was on a little vacation last week. Uh, you missed the Donnie. Yeah. Uh, you missed the Donnie Brook, though, Dieter. We'll have to replay that one for you. Well, that's it. I know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, for those of you that um, don't know how to contact us here, you can contact me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments will include the microband trivia quiz, David Governo of the Governo Law Firm, and Craig Suppo from Burns and Scallow Roofing. We would first like to thank our sponsors, the Microband Systems folks, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings, Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. To contact the show, you simply go to the www.talkshoe.com website, follow the directions. Get your PIN number, and our show ID number is 1547. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, for the microband trivia quiz for today. Thanks, Joe. Before we get into today's trivia questions, congratulations go out to Darren Hudima of Washington State for answering two more microband trivia questions. He answered the blonde bomb cell question, and what we were looking for there was who in 1967 died in a car crash from severe head trauma when the car she was driving collided with the rear of a truck fogging for mosquitoes. This famous pinup girl was Jane Mansfield. He also answered the hockey question. What material was used as the first hockey puck? He knew that answer, Cal Dung. By now, Darren's prizes for answering the microband trivia questions have likely arrived. 
the sealed envelope with the microband trivia questions for Friday, March 9th, 207, contains two trivia questions. Zach, the envelope, please. Thank you. This week's trivia questions are related to building defects, and we have two. Question one. Due to a defect in the type of cement used to construct the bell tower, or Carolyn, on the campus of this Midwestern University, the tower had to be rebuilt twice. Name the tower and the university. Question two. The origin of the phrase, all good architecture leaks, can be traced to. The origin of the phrase, all good architecture leaks, can be traced to. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. first guest, David M. Gavarno, is the founding partner of the Gavarno Law Firm in Boston, Massachusetts. Mr. Gavarno represents clients throughout the United States in cases involving mold, lead, asbestos, and construction defect claims. He also advises building owners or business owners on risk management, insurance, and claims, and has been invited to present papers on at IAQ conferences throughout the country including ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Got to watch the acronym police are out there. The Harvard School of Public Health and Mealy's Construction Defect and Mold Conference. He is also speaking on IAQ at the National Conference in New York City on March 29th for that particular conference. David has also taught many courses for the water loss and disaster recovery industry, and recently authored the article, Tips to Reduce Builder Liability Claims, published in Indoor Environment Connections. And last year, he won the first Rhode Island Mold Trial. Welcome, David. Hello, thanks, David. Joe. Oh, thank you, and thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. I have to get the, the governor, uh, governor down properly here. I apologize for that. Uh, it's uh, it's I've been calling you governo for too long here, David. I have to fix that. Governo, the governor you is in it. here. All right. Well, it's great to have you with us, and I'm going to turn it over to Cliff first to ask a couple quick questions for you. Hey, David, what constitutes a construction defect? Ooh. Construction defect is basically any um, variance from what you would expect to see in a building. And it could be something related to the material used. Maybe it's a, you know, a, a plastic that didn't uh, hold up. It could be related to the design of the building. Or it could be related to the manner in which the building was put together. Any of those three things. And can this type of construction defect cause an indoor air quality or health problem? If so, how? Oh, absolutely. You can get both uh, poor indoor air quality and uh, health problems from uh, construction defects and pretty much uh, uh, 
a myriad of different ways. Uh, you know, typically, it, since mold is uh, in everybody's uh, mind these days, you see it with uh, building envelope failure, some kind of a water penetration um, causing uh, mold buildup and people complaining of uh, smells, odors, and uh, potential health problems. How long does the buyer of a new home have to go back on the builder for construction defects after their warranty is over? Oh, you guys are getting into the technical legal questions right at the outset. (laughs) Want to get our money's worth. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Free legal advice. (laughs) That that varies from state to state. Um, Basically, in any kind of... um, lawsuit, potential lawsuit, people understand that there's a certain amount of time that they have in order to w- in, in which to bring a claim, otherwise you're barred from asserting the claim. Um, in a, the construction defect setting, that's not governed by what you usually hear um, uh, people talk about, a statute of limitations. It's governed by something called the statute of repose, and it works a little differently. It's basically... Uh, the typical statute of repose is six years from the date that the uh, structure was substantially completed. So uh, n- it, it doesn't matter how long the warranty was, the triggering event is the date of the substantial completion of the building, and typically you get six years, but again, that varies from state to state. It does not matter if the uh, defect was hidden, undiscoverable, whatever, it's uh, when when the, that statute of repose expires, uh, the potential for a lawsuit um, in general against builders or architects is over. Do you feel there are more construction defect claims being made in certain geographical areas? Yeah, sure, sure. You know, California is a typical place where we see construction defect claims. I would say the Southwest generally, because of the uh, huge boom in building, you know, Nevada, Arizona, you see a lot of claims out there, but there are claims all over the place. So it's just, it's just a, a very variable, but for whatever reason, uh, California and the Southwest in general seems to be uh, a popular place for construction defect claims. David, is there a most common construction defect? Well, you know, Statistically speaking, I'm sure there is, but it's it's there's such a range of variability in terms of what we see for uh, uh, things failing. You know, it, it could be a, a product failure, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of things. I would think that the most common thing that people sue about has to do with building envelope failures. That seems to be a real point of vulnerability. And, and typically it's in uh, the installation of the materials, the construction per se, rather than the uh, product used or even the design, although you know, design certainly gets to be an issue in some situations. David, just as a follow-up, we're, you know, we're on the radio. We have some new people here. They listen in on occasion. Could you briefly describe what you mean by the building envelope? Oh, okay. This is... If you, if you picture the building, whether, whether it's a residential structure or an office building, as a box, what the building envelope refers to is the 
the the cardboard of the box, the roof, the walls, and the foundation and the slab or whatever the the base of the building uh, consists of, and we see failures from uh, from all all of the different surfaces. You know, roofing failures um, uh, are are common because that's you know the first point of uh, of where the building is going to get wet if it rains or when it rains. We we see uh, window failures um, because of the flashing installed improperly or the the, the windows just not being uh, uh, put together right. And uh, you know, one of the things that's uh, sort of a hot topic now is uh, soil vapor intrusion. This is a situation where if there's a negative pressure within the building, whatever contaminants exist in the ground below the building can get sucked in uh, into the living space and, and cause uh, property damage and uh, personal injuries. Radon is, is one that comes to mind and people probably are aware of, but depending upon... Um, the substrate of the uh, of the the building and what what's there, any kind of chemical, uh, particularly uh, v, what's I, I I'll use the word VOC or the acronym it's a volatile organic compound. Any kind of that stuff can get drawn in and uh, pose a potential health problem. Do you think that is occurring more? Now, because we are building in areas that maybe weren't as desirable, uh, brownfields, etc. Absolutely, that's where it come, becomes a problem all the time. And uh, one of the things that uh, you know I I have seen come up more and more uh, is the issue of uh, using the ventilation system in the building to uh, try to mitigate that from occurring by basically creating a positive pressure within the building rather than a negative pressure so that the um, whatever's under there, VOCs, radon, whatever, doesn't get in. Do you find house price cost factor uh, is an issue or more costly homes more or less likely to have construction defects? You know, that, that's, a, that's a common question. It's an interesting question because, uh, you know, you typically would think that um, – the more expensive homes would be built better and would be less likely to have problems. And uh, the fact of the matter is it doesn't uh, matter whether a house is uh, a million-dollar house, a two-million-dollar house, or a $150,000 house. Uh, any one of those homes can have uh, construction defects. Sometimes the more complicated houses are, uh, you know, they, they just – they invite problems with complex roof designs, uh, sort of uh, sophisticated window and, and entry systems and so forth. Uh, so it, it's really not a function of cost. It's a function of the manner in which they're built and the, the, the design. Sometimes the simplest designs are the uh, best. Going back just for a moment to the um, geographical areas, I'm curious if you feel that these geographical areas have more concerns with construction defects as a result of the climate, the rapid growth, building experience, you know, the builder's experience or lack of skilled labor, some other reason, all of these together. What are your thoughts on that? Maybe well, more maybe more lawyers want to live in certain climates? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't... 
we lawyers are always the brunt of jokes. Uh, <laughs> people love to make lawyer jokes, and um, that's fine, Joe. You can go ahead and do that. But the, I don't think that's the that's the source for the uh, large number of construction defects claims we see in the Southwest. I'd speculate that the source is the lack of uh, skilled labor, and and the fact that you've got people who really aren't trained to do what they uh, need to do, putting together homes, it, typically in a very uh, expedited manner that, you know, people end up cutting corners. And that's what, you know, that's what uh, we look to help people avoid when, uh, you know, we counsel people on trying to avoid litigation, because that's, in my mind, that's the name of the game these days. It's not it's not getting people out of trouble. It's it's keeping them out of trouble by giving them some uh, advice as to how to protect themselves in advance by training, by looking at where they're liable and uh, to be sued, and uh, cutting off those avenues uh, through some you know awareness and sometimes some relatively simple steps. No, I, I I was joking a bit there, but on the other hand, I I recognize that you do more defense-type work than plaintiff-type work. Is that accurate to say? Oh, yeah. Typically, typically, I am on the defense side. I was on the defense side in that Rhode Island and mold trial, and uh, the bulk of my practice is uh, representing builders, um, contractors, you know, all sorts of uh, homeowners um, in cases in which they're being sued. It. I recently read an article you wrote. I can't remember what. Um, journal it was in, but I got the impression that within your practice, at least, there is almost always some type of settlement when you defend against these construction defect claims. Why don't more builders fight vigorously and try to stop some of these claims before they start? Well, you know, we are trying to get people to stop some of these claims before they start. Uh, through uh, a number of different uh, routes, uh, you know the. But in civil litigation, generally, ninety-five percent of the cases settle, and they settle because of a lot of reasons, not the least of which are the cost of of litigating it, the the transaction costs, as we say, to pay the lawyers, to pay the experts, to um, you know take time out of your work to get involved in a legal issue when you should be out doing your job and making money. And also the uncertainty of bringing a case to trial in front of a jury. You just cannot predict with any real accuracy how 12 or 6 people from the street are going to see your claim, how they're going to like your experts, how they're going to interpret the documents that you put into evidence. And so it's always a crapshoot. And people like to buy their certainty. And so settlements are often a way of uh, that this the the case gets resolved because it's just you know smartest from everyone's perspe- perspective. That helps me understand a little better. Now, of those cases that go to court, how are the defendants doing? Winning most of the time, break even, losing most of the time. Well, how do you see it? It's it's you cannot say that the defendants win or the plaintiffs win. It's it's totally dependent upon the facts of the case and the law in the particular jurisdiction. And unlike what most people believe, a lot of times it's based upon the personalities of the people involved. 
you know, I'd re- much rather be uh, representing someone who's a nice person who puts on, uh, you know, uh, a good uh, persona for the jury, uh, but may have, uh, you know, uh, not done exactly 100% of what he or she should have done than someone who, you know, technically, uh, factually did all the right stuff but comes across like uh, someone who is not believable. Uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a personality issue as well as a factual issue. And we, once you factor in all of those things, we as lawyers try to predict the future by saying, well, the likelihood that our client's going to win is 100%, 5%, somewhere in the middle. And then we look at how much money is at stake because that's what we're really talking about in 99% of these cases. And we do some math and some some analysis and try to come up with a value on the case. And typically within a range, that's what the case settles for. Cliff? David, what is a builder's liability audit? And would you recommend a builder have something like that done? A, a builder's liability audit is a term that I actually came up with. What The reason I came up with it is because I, I just got tired of seeing people inherit liability, mostly liability that they created, liability that they could have avoided, if they had taken a little time and looked at what they were doing and how that could be interpreted by someone else. It's, a, it's sort of a self-awareness program that I have put together to try to keep clients out of trouble rather than getting them out of trouble, as I said before. The liability audit that we recommend is we use the attorney-client privilege, the the confidentiality aspects of the legal profession and the relationship between a lawyer and a client in order to um, give the client the confidence that the information that's being shared with the lawyer in this, in this audit is not going to be discovered and then used against that person at a later trial. And a lot of people would like to avoid this sort of introspection because, number one, they don't like to hear bad news about what they're doing and having to change the manner in which they're doing something. Two, they don't want this information, you know, coming out in a memo or some letter and uh, the other side saying, well, you knew that this staircase was dangerous or you knew that you weren't delivering on the goods that you said you were delivering. And so for reasons like that, they're, they're, they're hesitant to do it. Getting a lawyer involved gives you some confidentiality. It also gives you an independent um, expert to assess what's going on. The way these work is, is, is and can be relatively simple. It, one of the biggest areas of liability that we see all the time is in what the what yes, it's in in the contracts that the builders have but it's also in the representations they make on websites and promotional materials and, and the like. And what we would do is review those materials, see if they're making any promises that they shouldn't be making that they can't um, you know, uh, uh, make good on, and modify those um, advertising materials, website ads or whatever, so that they're consistent with what the client's delivering. Because the, the easiest way to get sued is to, over-promise and under-deliver. 
Sorry. Audits also. Yeah, you could also have audits. We we see a lot of problems with training. People that you know they they're not doing training. They they the communications to their employees are weak. They're not accurate, and uh, we you can look at as many or as few of those different things. Try to identify those that are most vulnerable that make the company most vulnerable and plug those holes. How has this program been received by the builders in your area and uh, your practice? The the people are are very hesitant to spend money when they don't have to. So trying to talk clients into doing this is a difficult task until they see what they can get for it. So we, this is a relatively new uh, venture that we've instituted, and the, what we found is that the clients who have, have done it are exceedingly happy. But it's it's like a lot of things; they it's they just don't see the value of spending, you know, what can be really short money sometime for you know a couple thousand dollars. The the clients could buy so much, you know, quote unquote insurance. Um, that, uh, you know, they would protect their company from potentially, uh, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars or million-dollar lawsuits. Um, but to, to uh, spend this money seems to be uh, a difficult proposition for a lot of people because it's, there's no guaranteed results. Okay. The article also mentioned that some of these construction defects claims involve odors. And I, I'm curious, um, when you're dealing with odors from new construction, are you are you familiar with the problem sheetrock drywall that's been made in China that's causing an odor problem? I've run into this a few times with consultants and builders in the Florida area. Have you heard about that? Well, I've heard about it. I haven't had any cases related to it yet. But it, you know, basically, people operate based upon their perceptions. And if they, you know... Uh, if they get the sense that something's wrong, they start digging more and more deeply. And one of the things that um, uh, that comes up all the time is a, is an odor issue because with a lot of the new construction, you're going to get you know paints off, gassing, and all sorts of materials being used that do emit some odors. And people often equate a bad odor with a toxin. And the fact of the matter is, is that for most toxins, the odor threshold is very low. You can smell something that is bad for you at, you know, a billion part, uh, you know, one part per billion, but it takes a part per thousand or something like that to be a potential health hazard. So this is often a um, uh, a source of, of discomfort and nuisance and often uh, dissatisfaction to the point where people are suing. But it can develop, even if it's not any kind of a toxic problem or a health hazard, you could have a lawsuit and damages, and you could could have some real liability simply from a nuisance odor. Because the question to a jury will be, is this house habitable? And if the jury got the impression through the witnesses or documents or whatever that, the, the smell was so bad that the average person couldn't live in the house, then the jury would be likely to find that that house was uninhabitable and award damages to make that person whole and to, you know, reimburse them the cost of the house or 
something else that would mitigate the damages. Well, it's very difficult. You very anticipated difficult. my follow-up question and, and answered it very well. So there is some potential liability there for the builder, whether it's causing health effects or not. Absolutely. It, the, uh, the problem with the, the construction defect does not have to be a health hazard in order to be a, a liability. The fact, if, if the house cannot be used as it was intended to be used, then you've got a potential problem on your hands, whether it's hurting somebody or not. Okay, David, we've got a caller that would like to ask a question. Let's see if we, do we have sure. Darren? Darren on the line? Yes, good morning. Hello, good morning, Hi, Darren. Darren. Talking about uh, litigation, uh, one of the things that uh, has happened over the last uh, couple of years is obviously contractors that have lost uh, um, general liability insurance, which uh, would lead to mold or have mold issues associated to it. How is what buildings um, affecting contractors today, and what are they doing about it to correct the situation? Well, it, the insurance has changed a lot over the last five years in terms of mold and moisture and so forth. What originally happened was that the insurance companies did not anticipate the mold claims that they were getting. They ended up getting hammered by claims that they had not really reserved for. They hadn't gotten enough premiums to, uh, to uh, you know, make the payouts a, a, a profitable thing, and so they started restricting coverage. Over the last year or two, we've seen changes in the insurance industry sort of going the other way. They, they sort of overcorrected and cut back on the mold coverage. Now we're seeing some mold coverage becoming available with certain restrictions, and so that opportunity comes up. The second part of your question having to do with moisture is, is sort of a almost more simple one. Um, a lot of times buildings are being built so quickly that they're put together before they get an opportunity to dry out. The, mo the, water, the moisture gets trapped in the house and is a source of potential mold. Uh, that can be handled a number of different ways. One of the ways we see is uh, the more sophisticated builders doing some structural drying at the point before the, the building envelope is actually completed so that this... Uh, or after, as soon as, as it has been completed, so that it dries out quickly without the opportunity for mold growing. David, one of our recent guests, a gentleman by the name of Lloyd Weaver, described the service he's providing for builders. I, I don't recall the exact name. Do you recall, Cliff? Yeah, that was it was Dust Down. Dust Down. He essentially goes into these new construction and sucks out all the construction dust left behind prior to occupancy. How do you think this type of service would go over with the builders you work with? Would they pay for it? Uh, would they let buyers know the service exists? You know, it seems to me like it's admitting you didn't clean up after building the home, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, you, from a legal perspective, a builder is responsible to do what a typical builder in that setting would would do what is the industry standard for cleaning after construction you know if the if the builder met that industry standard then the builder would have a defense to any liability but it's interesting that you bring up dust because i i'm in the middle of a renovation project in my own home 
and in calling some of the uh, builders' prior customers to get references, one of them mentioned to me how excited she was because unbeknownst to her, before the, my builder delivered the, the renovation to her, he had hired specialty cleaners to go through and clean the inside, you know, uh, in a way that she had no, uh, you know, anticipation that that was going to happen. And she was extremely happy about that. Now, that's something I, my builder, you know, could have promoted that as a, um, you know, uh, a symbol or, or an example of the quality of his construction, and he didn't. I think he missed the boat on that. I think it's an opportunity to market the the quality of the builder services in a way that uh, you know separates that builder out from the average builder, uh, and so it's a it's a good opportunity. I don't think it's an admission of any liability. I, it could eventually, if enough builders do this, it could set a new standard that would require all builders delivering um, you know a structure. Uh, would require them to, to live up to that standard. I think that unless it's built into the contract that the owner has with the builder, it's not necessary. I've got a message text in, and I, I hope I'm getting this right, and it's over this definition of bad. Uh, who determines what's bad? The customer says it's bad, or is bad determined by a reasonable person, a jury, a judge? Who determines what's bad, David, in terms of a defect? That's a good question. Uh, typically, the the decision would be made by the jury. Okay. The jury would be asked the question, you know, did the builder comply with his or her obligations under the contract? And if the contract was not specific about a particular point, the question would be, did the builder comply with the standards of builders in that locale at that particular time? The, um, whether the builder deviated from that standard would be a question that would uh, be decided based upon what the owner said happened, what the builder said happened, and what the expert said happened. And then the, um, the jury would be left to decide. It wouldn't, the jury would not take the owner's perspective without regard to what the average person would say about the particular problem. So if you've got somebody who was hyper susceptible to odors and said, well, you know, I don't care that nobody else can smell this. I can smell it. And this house is no good. I'm moving out. I want you to buy it back. The average jury would say, you're nuts. We're not, that's inappropriate. And we're not going to uh, let you win that argument. Two quick ones for you. Be uh, I appreciate if you can stick with us for a little bit longer. This has been really interesting, David. Uh, the sure. fir the first one is there seems to be a lot of new building products coming out every day. Different types of insulation, floor coverings, wall coverings, um, different ways of finishing sheetrock, do-it-yourself basement finishing systems, decking. Now I'm seeing nanotechnology insulation. How do you advise builders to evaluate these products? before they use them on their own projects? That's, a, that's an excellent question because there's always the, the uh, tendency to think that uh, something new is something better. And often it is, but sometimes it's not. And the advice I give my clients is to have 
a good reason for why you did it. And that reason isn't that, you know, some salesperson told you that this was the latest, greatest thing and you could save money and deliver a better product. You've got to see some scientific or objective evidence that this um, product is going to perform. I just, you know, in my own project, I'll bring it up again as an example. The question came up, do we use copper pipes? Copper is an all-time high now for, for the uh, potable water. Uh, you know, plastic, some I, I call it plastic, it's PEX or something like that. This is an alternative. It's easier to install, it's cheaper to buy, and uh, it sounds like a good idea. After doing a little bit of research, I found that it's been used in Europe for decades. It's used in the West a lot. And I said, sounds fine to me. Let's go for it. But it would be easier to get sued from from the perspective of liability. It would be easier to get sued from adopting a new product too quickly than it would be from staying with an old proven product. So I would say be careful, do your homework, have a good reason to adopt a new uh, system, product, whatever, and get the client's approval of it. Don't just make that decision on your own because if you inform the customer, get the customer, you know, let them know what the pluses and minuses are, get the customer to make that decision with you, the likelihood that the customer is going to complain about it at a later date is pretty minimal. Okay, David, I want to shift the tension over to chemicals and I've got really three questions that I want to ask you in regards to to chemicals. The first is does the use of an antimicrobial in accordance with the product's label instructions on a mold remediation project fall under the pollution exclusion? Well, I'm going to have to get a retainer. Okay. <laughs> Wait to hear the other that's, two questions. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough that's a tough one, Cliff, because it's, it's often fact-dependent. Whenever somebody asks me an insurance question, I would like to see the policy because there is a pollution. There are, certainly there are some typical pollution exclusions, but there, it's, it's dangerous for a lawyer to say, here's the way it goes, and then find out that somebody has interpreted that in, in, a, in a way that uh, is inconsistent with the particular language of a policy. But um, the short answer with that disclaimer is probably not. I would agree. Yeah. Uh, no, that's my opinion as well, and I just figured that I would ask. I guess the second yeah. question is, the use of antimicrobials is somewhat controversial. Mm. Does a remediator face a greater risk for using them or not using them? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, you have the option for using the antimicrobials. The question is, should you? And there, there really is no uh, no answer, yes or no. There's going to be no legal protection by using them or not using them. The key is the proper use and the techniques and the materials. The, again, similar to adopting new technology or new materials, I would suggest that you have to have a good reason for doing it. You know, if you're putting, you know, a potentially, uh, you know, harmful material in order to, to solve what you anticipate as being a problem, you've, you need a reason to do it, you need to inform the client or customer that you're doing it, get their approval, and then you're safe to do it. But uh, it's not like you can say, uh, if you don't use the antimicrobials, 
you're missing the boat and you're deviating from the standard of care. But I say that with some exceptions because it may be, you know, in a hospital setting, for instance, where if you don't use antimicrobials, you are deviating from the standard of care, and um, that's why uh, it's it's just a very fact-dependent um, analysis that needs to be performed. You know, you mentioned that you're having some renovation done in your home. I'm not sure whether it's internal or external. Uh, the, the question is, what are your thoughts on the addition of a topical antimicrobial treatment to building materials during the construction process? Yeah, that's that's another one that is uh, uh, very fact-dependent, de and, and it depends upon what the setting is and what your, um, you know, interests are as far as uh, preventing potential mold growth, if that's what you're going after um, in that particular setting. You know, the, the question came up, not so much the antimicrobials, but what kind of sheet drywall do we use? Do we use the uh, stuff without the cellulose or with the fiberglass on it, or do we use the, the cellulose, the old one? And, uh, you know, uh, my understanding is that there, there's still uh, some questions with respect to the the actual uh, the quality of the surface coating of some of these new products that are being just uh, perfected over the time and adopting them early on um, is a little bit risky. So sometimes it's it's better you know less is more and it's better to uh, uh, rather than overload on antimicrobials make sure that your design's proper that the, uh, you know, the flashing is proper and so forth. In some settings where you have, uh, you know, likely moisture penetration or something like that, it's, it's probably a good idea to have a belt and suspenders approach and uh, get, get some kind of treatment. Okay. Well, this has been a, a tremendous interview. We would always like to uh, offer you the opportunity to add anything that maybe we had missed. You know, you guys have covered it quite well. I think that the one piece of advice that I would like to uh, impart on um, builders or architects or whoever might be interested in keeping themselves out of trouble in the context of uh, construction defects is, is looking ahead, trying to anticipate where you might be sued and taking the steps before it's too late because it's it, although, it, you know, this is where we make our money is defending lawsuits, uh, it's, it's very hard to inherit uh, somebody's problem and frustrating to see that with a little bit of foresight and with some changes in the way that they did business or that the design or more training, they could have avoided some serious headaches with, relatively, uh, e with relative ease. And so I would try to give uh, people the advice to, uh, you know, the sort of ounce of uh, prevention's a pound of cure, and um, think about a liability audit as a way of um, insurance, not so much the real insurance like you obviously need, but some legal insurance that you are doing the right thing and uh, reducing the risk of a lawsuit down the road. How can our listeners contact you or your firm? 
The we have a website www.governorgovernow.com. Um, uh, my email d as in David governor at governor.com and uh, be happy to try to help anybody out. We've had a couple other text questions we just couldn't get to. Let me see if uh, Dr. Wild Dietrich, are you on the line still? Uh, yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? We, we can hear you just fine. Before we let uh, David go, is there anything you wanted to add or any questions you'd like to ask? <clears throat> well, no, not really questions, but comments. I think he's he's absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I think we we know how to build buildings for about 1,500 years. I know a bunch of those in Europe. They're still standing without mold and without roof leaks. <laughs> And yeah, I'm flabbergasted um, yeah, to hear that all these problems exist. And you know, I agree with him. Maybe it's we, we just don't train our framers, our builders uh, correctly, and it's a sloppy job. I, I I think we we know how to do it, but we don't do it. That to me is one of the the, the one things that. That, that always makes sense to me. The other thing is with the smell, you know, for the smell, we basically only have our nose, and which is not the same in every person. And uh, again, I agree here, and I'm involved in, in lawsuits with VOCs and so on, and I said, I, you know, when, when, when somebody, a plaintiff or somebody complains that I smelled that stuff, I know I was overexposed. By and large, I would say 95 or maybe even more percent of all the solvents commonly used, you can smell at concentrations which are far away from dangerous concentrations. Okay. Well, thank you, Dieter, for those uh, insights, and thank you, David. Governo, I, I think I've, I'll get it right yet, David, and we, we really appreciate you joining us. And if you'd like to stick around at the end of the show, we usually have a little round table. I think we've got him muted, maybe. Uh, yes. Sorry about that, David. We're, oh, there you go. Okay. <clears throat> well, thanks again for joining us, David. And if, like I say, if you'd like to stick around, we'll have a round table at the end. I will stick around and be happy to listen to the rest of the show. Great. Thank you. Hey, thank, you. thank you for joining us. There's a leak in the soul building, and my soul oh, has got to move. I tell you, my soul oh, has got to move. I tell you, my soul oh, has got to move. There's a leak in the soul building. Burns & Scallow was founded as a roofing contracting firm in 1956. Burns & Scallow operates roofing businesses in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and North Carolina. Burns & Scallow employs 250 staff and has annual revenues in excess of $25 million. Burns & Scallow has won many awards for its roofing expertise, some of which are the Pittsburgh Historic Preservation Award, Group Safety Awards from CNA Insurance, the Angie's List Super Service Award, the RSI Roofing Contractor of the Year Award, and Burns and Scala was rated as one of the top 25 contracting firms by the Pittsburgh Business Times. The website is Burns, B-U-R-N-S hyphen Scalo, S-C-A-L-O dot com. 
Craig Suppo is a fourth-generation construction worker, and he is the lead salesman and estimator for the residential division of Burns & Scallow Roofing. Craig has 15 years of roofing experience and is knowledgeable about all types of residential roofing systems. Craig was 2006 Salesman of the Year for the entire firm. Craig, thanks for joining us on IAQ Radio. Thank you. My pleasure. Craig, what's the role of a roof in maintaining good indoor air quality? The most important thing is obviously ventilation. Um, it's the biggest key to any roofing system. And uh, what happens is if you don't have the right ventilation or if you have too much ventilation, you're going to have poor air quality and Mother Nature will find a way to get the weather on the inside of your house, which is the second most important function is to keep the weather out. Um, so a roofing system design is very important in all components that are used to make sure that the air quality stays as consistent in the attic space as it does on the first floor. Craig, I'd like to quickly go over a few of the different basic types of roofs and, and keeping in mind that we have a lot of IEQ investigators out there may not be familiar with roofing or as familiar with roofing as you are. Could you tell us what types of problems to look for with respect, for instance, on slate roofs? Um, there's some pretty obvious things to look for. On a slate roof, the first thing that you can see is you can see bits of and pieces of slates down on the ground below. Um, this is a clear indication that the slates are uh, spalding, is a technical name, but what that means is they're coming apart in layers and essentially disintegrating on the roof. Um, they've become very soft, and uh, leaks are if they're not happening at that moment, are you know, only a few months away probably at best. Um, with a tile roof, it's a little bit more complex because tiles by themselves don't come apart like slates do when they get to an age. What will happen with a tile roof is the glazing will wear off. And when the glazing wears off, then they start soaking in water like a sponge. And if you're in a northern climate, the, the freezing during the winter months will cause them to break and crack but they don't necessarily fall off the roof, so you'll start getting leaks and not really sure why. How do you, when you look at a, a, a tile roof, how do you tell if the glazing, I mean, I'm trying to, we're on the radio, I'm trying to picture this. How do I paint a picture of when an investigator can determine that the glazing is starting to uh, deteriorate? It's all a question of look and touch. Um, in the most extreme cases, I've seen tile roofs that you could see the pit marks in them because the glazing wasn't there anymore, so okay. the terracotta clay um, was just getting pit holes in it. But you know, on a finer tuning uh, way of looking at it, it comes down to touch. Um, if you can start feeling a roughness to the clay tile itself, then the glazing is gone. Um, if you still feel a smooth glass-like finish to it, they're still in very good condition. Even though they might have discolored, there's nothing wrong with them. Great. How about uh, let's go with shake roofs? Cedar shakes are probably the easiest ones to know if there's something wrong and to detect the quality of them. Uh, working here in Pittsburgh, we have a climate that is very brutal to a cedar shake roof, and different climates, they will last longer, but the obvious things that you look for is moss or uh, mold growing on the cedar shakes. If you see a large area of green on your roof, you know you have uh, wood rot, and it's just adding to the growth of the moss and the algae, which means that uh, the shakes are done and have to come off the roof. Now, the other thing you can look for on a cedar shake roof is you'll see a lot of what's called lifting or curling. Um, and as the cedar shakes age 
and get wet and dry out several seasons after several seasons, they start actually curling and uh, bowing right on the roof. Um, so you'll see them lift up. Um, tails, as they're called, the part that's exposed, will start curling up. Um, the other thing that you'll notice is if you see pieces of sea or shake, um, either in the gutters or on the ground below, uh, you should have somebody take a look at it, a qualified installer, as soon as possible. I've noticed more residential roofs, which are metal roofs. Can you give us some tips on those? Metal roofs are probably the, one of the better bets to go with. There's very little maintenance to, to do with them. There's very little things that can go wrong with them. And there's two different types of metal roofing. One is called standing seam, and the other is called flat lock seam. A standing seam roof has two different ways of being installed. One is hidden fasteners, and the other is exposed fasteners. The hidden fasteners is the premium top-of-the-line way of doing it because it allows for expansion and contraction and movement of all the panels. The exposed fastener is, just as it says, the screws go right through the metal, and you can see them from anywhere on the ground. Uh, so expansion and contraction, it's not made for that. Um, it's not going to last as long. And the nature of metal roofs, they don't hold snow and ice if you're in the north, and they shed water or anything else very easily and very quickly. So the duration of life of that type of roof is extremely good. Uh, I've seen actually farmhouses here in uh, rural southwestern Pennsylvania that have had the metal roofs for well over 100 years um, that have just held up well because they don't hold the snow and the ice, and it's a steep roof. So it's a, it can be an excellent roof. The other type, flat lock, is more used on a porch roof, it's typically where you see it, and it's a soldered roof. Typically is done with tin or copper, or nowadays uh, turn-coated stainless steel we use a lot. And the nice feature about it is that it's a very flat roof or near flat, but by having soldered metal seams, it doesn't leak, and it will hold up you know, roughly about 45 to 50 years is what you'll get out of it. Okay. What about shingle roofs? Shingle roofs, uh, you look for cracking or curling um, is the first obvious thing you'll see. Um, if you climb up on a roof and you see a lot of uh, cracking, what I call varicose vein type of look to a shingle, then it's dried out. Um, shingles, the way they work is to obviously seal. They're all called self-sealing. And as long as they stay soft and pliable, uh, they will do their job and they'll stick to each other. But the problem is, is once they get dried out, and this comes by two ways, one, either age, or two, inadequate ventilation, they eventually stop sealing. And once they stop sealing, you'll see them start to curl and crack and uh, break off the roof. Cliff? I've got a couple questions in terms of inspection, Craig. Sure. What do you look for? When you're looking at the the exterior of a roof, do you have to get up on a ladder? Do you use binoculars and look at it from the ground? Is Do you physically have to get up there in order to inspect it? You have to get as close as possible. And there's a trick to every roof of what to look for. When I go out and do an inspection, the first thing that I do is I walk around the outside of the house. I you know get some pictures, and I just start surveying the ventilation. Um, because every roof, ventilation serves an important key to every type of roof. So... The first thing I look at is that. Then, of course, I get my ladder and I climb up. If it's a shingle roof, I'll climb right up on it to inspect a lot of the details of the roof, the shingles, the quality of the metal flashings, uh, the flashings that go around the plumbing vent pipes that extend through, any skylights, uh, roof louvers, the ridge vents, what have you. A slate roof and a tile roof, 
you can get on them, but there's a very careful way to do it, and you have to have help um, because you don't just walk on them because you'll break them, and uh, then you, of course, just cause a problem for the homeowner. So there's a right way and a wrong way to do everything, but you have to get up close and you have to inspect the underlayments as much as possible, the flashings, anything and everything that is connected to the roof needs to be inspected. Do you make any of your roof inspection from the interior of the home, and if so, what do you look for? As many as, as many of them as I can when the homeowners are available for me to get on the inside of the attic space, it's very important because it shows me how the uh, roof was installed. And one of the key things that I look for is nails. Most homeowners think that when they see nails on the underside of their roof that uh, somebody used nails that were too long and spent extra money, when the reality is is every roof you should see the nails sticking through. A good quarter of an inch, I like to see half an inch because what happens is the nails are on the outside of your roof with the head of the nail through the shingle, the tile, the slate, what have you. And they pick up a little bit of a temperature difference on the outside of your house as opposed to the inside. But the nail portion that's inside the wood picks up the interior of the house temperature. So there's a difference in temperature that causes condensation. If the nail does not come all the way through the wood on the inside, that little bit of condensation water droplets will soak into the wood and in time, will cause wood rot. Um, so that's one, one of the big things that I look for. The other thing is ventilation. Um, you know, ventilation is very important not just to the life of the roof, but also to the life of the wood that the roof is attached to. If you have too much ventilation, then what's going to be the problem is you're getting, uh, you're getting uh, not the adequate heat. You're, you're actually overventilating to the point where the weather can possibly come in. Um, I've seen cases where uh, snow had to be shoveled out of an attic because they had too many ventilation, ventilation uh, components bringing too much of the weather in. Um, but too little ventilation will cause dry wood rot. Um, so you have to be very careful about that as well. And then, of course, insulation in the attic is very key. Um, insulation in the attic will tell us how well the house is insulated to guard against snow and ice dams on the roof in the winter. Um, so you don't want to have too little insulation and you don't want to have it jammed into the edges of the roof because then you're not allowing the ventilation to work properly. You said the magic word, ice dam. I have three questions in relationship <laughs> to, to ice dams. First of all, I'd like to know, what is an ice dam? What happens on a roof is uh, in the winter, you get the snow that falls down. And we had a, a good storm a few weeks ago where we had about six inches of snow and then a freezing rain came. What happens is even without the freezing rain, that snow is on your roof. And, you know, you have six inches of snow up there, but what's happening is the heat that's in your house from running the furnace rises up, and it causes the underneath portion of that snow that's on your roof to melt. Even in a perfect roof installation and a perfect insulation, insulation of the attic space, this will happen. It's a normal function. The downside is, is if the water cannot get off the roof the way it's supposed to, either by the gutters being backed up with ice or clogged up with debris, the melting water that's coming down underneath the layer of snow gets trapped. Once it gets trapped at the roof edge, it starts freezing again. Then it creates an ice dam. From that point forward, all the other melting snow and ice water that's coming down the roof keeps backing up further and further on the roof, and that's how it finds a way into the house. It'll work its way underneath whatever roofing product you have and draw right into the warmer air. 
Well, you answered my second question, which is what type of damage is caused by it. Uh, the third question, is there anything that can be done to prevent this, Craig? There's two very important things, and we offer this service to every homeowner um, and businesses as well. The first thing that you should really do is you should have a roof inspection, gutter cleaning done twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall at minimum. Um, and here, here again, what that does is gets all the debris, leaves, seedlings, uh, little twigs. You know, what, you know, if there's a ball, it's in your gutter, a uh, little tennis ball. You want to get all of that out regularly, twice a year minimum. The other thing that you want to do is heat cables are a very good way to prevent the ice dam from creating itself right there at the edge of your roof. The typical way you want to install these is you want to have a qualified installer put them on the roof edge and in the gutter and in the downspouts. What that does is it makes sure that the entire path for the water is clear of ice. If you only do one of those three, the other two will freeze up so you're not really accomplishing anything. You need to have all three dealt with at the same time. What types of products? I, I see these different products for keeping gutters from getting clogged. Do you find problems with those? Do you recommend them? How do you handle that? I'm one of those people. I believe in the uh, old proven methods. Uh, new technology is great, but I'll wait and see if it has proven itself yet. So from my experience, the only thing that I believe in as far as gutters is there's two products that I always recommend to a homeowner. One is a gutter screen. And the reason I like a gutter screen is it has the most openings, the most holes, for the water to still go in the gutter while keeping the debris out. Um, but the other thing that happens is even in that system, a certain amount of debris still gets into the gutter. And the key there is to keep it from going into the downspouts. So what we do is right where the downspout connects to the gutter, we use what's called a leaf basket, a wire leaf basket that fits right into that connection point. Then, of course, the third part of it is still believe in having the gutters cleaned out twice a year. Okay, for the investigators out there, we've, we've got a roof leak. How do you trace a roof leak? Moisture meters, visual inspection, just... You've got you to start with a visual inspection on the inside. You have to know where the leak is to figure out where is it, is it tracing from. Um, you know, typically, if wherever you see it on a roof, it's starting at higher point. Um, water will work its way in, and it'll run down following the roof line, the rafters, the framing, until it hits a spot where it's stopped and forced to go another route. That's usually when you see the damage on the inside. Um, you know, it's a perfect example. I was on a lady's roof the other day that she had a cathedral ceiling that halfway up her cathedral ceiling was a, uh, a little bit of water spots, and she wasn't sure where it was coming from. Well, after inspecting her shingle roof, it, I realized that what she'd had, an unusual experience, but it does happen, she had an ice dam happen for the first 16 feet of her roof, and that's where it found its way in. Hmm. Very unusual, but it's usually something simple. Um, you know, you can trace water even in an attic space. When water comes into a house and there's no plasterboard or no drywall, you can trace it by the stains that the water will leave behind. So usually, visually, you can really determine where it's coming from pretty easily. Do you often find visible mold problems when making an interior roof inspection? Not that often. Uh, maybe, you know, in my experiences, probably about 5% of the time is there an obvious mold problem that I've detected. Um, a lot of times I see symptoms that I think it may be that, but I always defer that to, you know, somebody that's qualified in that field, obviously. Do you commonly find insects, rodents, birds, or any other pests in 
you know, in the attics and in these roofing structures? And if so, does your firm have any methods to exclude these pests from entering a roof system? Well, believe it or not, lately there seems to be a rash of squirrels gnawing their way into homes, into the attic space. Um, the best thing that we have found is if the homeowner is set on having the exterior wood finish pieces that are the edges of their roof stay as wood, then what we try to do is where there's a hidden spot behind one layer of wood but on top of the other, put in a piece of aluminum uh, or some other sort of metal that's not going to rust or rot. But, you know, the, the squirrel or whatever animal could burrow in so far but won't be able to get back into the house. Um, typically what I've seen is animals will do it in one or two spots where there's a spot where they can set and, you know, break into a one little area. They don't do it everywhere. They, you know, if they can sit on a ledge of a chimney and then uh, kind of chew their way in through one little spot that they can reach very easily, that's usually what they do. What we we talked a little bit about ventilation and attics. How do you determine what the appropriate amount of ventilation is? I mean, I, I assume it's on a case by case basis to some degree, but I'm curious. Uh, we run into this quite a bit when people do have mold problems in their attics. What's the uh, is there a rule of thumb or? There is um, one of the things that you first have to do is you determine the square footage of the attic, and then of course. Uh, you determine what type of ventilation components they have. The first one is the soffit area, which is the uh, underside of the roof overhang right where the gutter is. That's the area where you have to have ventilation right there. Um, it's called the air intake section. And uh, if you don't have it, the air intake there, everything else on the roof is kind of a second measure um, that you're not really achieving full proper ventilation. Um, but even at that, you, you see homes that have no overhangs, and you can still ventilate it. There are various products that you can put on a roof right at the eveg um, that allow for that ventilation to start at the bottom. The other thing that I always look for is what type of components. Uh, you don't want to mix and match different components. You want to settle on one system and leave it at that, because when you start mixing different systems, that's when you're kind of creating a draft effect. And what you actually do is you'll be pulling the weather from the outside in um, through one of your components because you're mixing different systems. So you really just need one system and settle with that. I'm not sure I understand what you mean by one system. Uh, can you describe that a little bit more for us? I sure can. Um, a lot of times people have this soffit ventilation at the, at the roof overhangs, and then they have a ridge vent on the peaks of their roof. That is one system. Okay. Um, unfortunately, what I have also seen is I've seen people thinking that they don't have enough ventilation and they add a power roof fan or two to the house. What, you do, what happens when you do that is the power roof fans are so powerful that they will actually pull the outside air in through the ridge vent um, as opposed to letting the inside air go out through the ridge vent. And there have been cases where snow has been pulled into a house um, as a result. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that you have to guard against. Um, the other thing that typically we run into is on an older home that has a basic, simple gable roof line. Um, it's just a triangle roof, that's all it is. And they have an overhang at the, at the eave edges where the gutters are to put your soffit vent in. But they don't have a ridge vent, but they want a new roof. We put a ridge vent on, but we cover up on the inside whatever other vents they might have on their exterior walls. Um, typically what's called a, a gable and vent 
um, a wall lever vent is what it's called some places as well, because that's a component that doesn't work with the ridge vent and the soffit vents. They will actually do the same problem as a power roof fan, and the weather could be pulled into the house and moisture could get in that way. That's an ex- excellent explanation of that issue. In fact, I just had to straighten my brother out on that one. He, uh, he had uh, ice forming on the underside of his roof. <laughs> he was <laughs> pulling in so much cold air. But, uh, well, that I also have a – this is a personal question. I'm a, I was a roofer back in my, you know, college days and uh, right after high school. And we always put in metal valleys um, when we had any kind of um, dormers or whatever. We put in a metal valley. Now I see all of these uh, different types of valleys. They're not – they don't seem to be metal as much anymore. Is that a problem or is that – just uh, a, be- a better technique, a less expensive technique? How do you handle that? It's a, Actually, believe it or not, I handle it as it's a, it's a newfangled way of doing it, and I don't necessarily believe in it. If it's done properly, and installation is done properly, it's not an issue. And the proper way to do it is what we believe in is that ice and water shield should be installed in every valley, regardless of whether it's a metal exposed valley or a non-metal shingled valley. And typically what you're describing is called a woven valley. And you can do that, but the ice and water shield has to be there. And the reason being is what you're doing is you're taking a product that was meant to lay flat and you're bending it around a corner, albeit an inside corner, but you're bending it. So you're actually putting a crease through a fiberglass mat that is the core of the shingle. That by itself causes a a defect in the shingle by the way it's installed that way. Manufacturers have nothing against that, but the ice and water shield have to be underneath because the water will get underneath the shingles in that area. But the ice and water shield will make sure that it goes no further. The ice and water shield doesn't allow the rainwater, the melting snow and ice, to penetrate through it. It suctions up to the nails on like a bituminous rubbery product so that the water comes right back off the roof. Craig, how does a Burns and Scallo roofer learn roofing principles? Does your company have a training program? We do. In fact, uh, it's not just for the uh, field personnel. We have uh, we have actually have a safety director, so we start with safety training of how to tie off on a roof so that you're safe, so that if you lose your footing, you stay on the roof. Um, we have safety harnesses for the crews. But also what we do is our foremen uh, have once-a-month training and uh, updates, and uh, uh, we call it a foreman's meeting. It lasts all day, and then twice a year, every field personnel is in here in our uh, warehouse getting safety training, product testing, product training every six months so that all the current practices and requirements by all the manufacturers are strictly adhered to. Um, The other thing that we do is we have random stops and checks at every job site by our in-house field supervisors and safety inspectors. Uh, to make sure that everybody's doing everything properly and that we're not uh, cutting any corners anywhere. So it sounds like you have a fall protection program in accordance with OSHA regulations. Well, OSHA is very big. We have discussions on it every month um, and what we're doing and, and what we need to change or what we need to do for this job or that job. It's very important to what we do. It never ceases to amaze me when I drive around to see the number of roofers that have absolutely no fall protection program in place whatsoever. It is surprising. Um, in fact, what really surprises me is I know that OSHA has made roofing, specifically steep slope roofing, a much higher priority in the past couple of years, um, but you still see a lot of roofers do that. 
Is there anything that we missed that you would like to add, Craig? I would say the most important thing is for everybody, a homeowner, an inspector, what have you, is to you want to make sure of the longevity of the roofing professional that you're talking to. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that haven't been roofers for you know five years yet. Um, in fact, what we see is if, you know, if you take a phone book page of roofers uh, and wait five years and check it again, a lot of them are probably not in business anymore. So you really want to make sure that the people that are doing the work are really top-notch and are professional and that that's what they do. How, how can our listeners contact you if they would like further information or to uh, get your services? Well, simply, I'd say if you want to uh, check out our website, which is uh, www.burns-scallow.com, uh, um, and our phone number is uh, 412-928-3060, and uh, if you just want to simply ask for me or whoever else, um, we have different divisions for different types of roofs, commercial for flat roofs and residential for slope roofs. Well, thank you, Craig. If you could hang in there for a moment, we'd like to see if we can bring back uh, David and uh, Dietrich. Are you two on the line? I'm on the line. Hello. I'm on the line as well. All right. Well, David, I was going to wonder if you wanted to ask our roofer any questions, and then I was going to let him ask you questions, and then we were going to let Dieter ask questions. So. Well, I think the, the question I, I had for the roofer was uh, already answered, and that had to do with the training. Uh, you know, to me, from a legal perspective, the training is going to be the key, not just in protecting the employees of the, the roofing company, but in making sure that the uh, people who are installing the roofs, the people that Dieter was sort of complaining about earlier, know what they're doing and are actually doing their job, because that's the way you're going to get quality work. And, you know, the more the, the work is of a quality nature, the fewer legal claims you're going to get. David, I, that's a question I that came to my mind. Would the building owner have some liability if they hired a roofer that didn't use appropriate uh, yep. safety practices? Well, it, possibly. It's it's likely. You know, it, you'd have a if you know what the roofer fell off and fell on somebody, and 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 that person made a claim against the owner. Uh, it would have to be something like that. It would have to be to, to a third party, not to the roofing, you know, people's independent uh, uh, or actual employees. Okay. But uh, not not likely. You know, of all the awards that Burns and Scallow has won, the one that I highlighted on my bio uh, sheet for the company and, and for Craig was the safety award that they received from CNA. I know, uh, you know, from our experience in, in dealing with roofing, how high of a workman's compensation rate that that is. And to see a company that is as large as this company is and to receive the safety award, that must have a wonderful program. Dr. Wow, are you still with us? Any questions or comments? Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. I'm ready to tear down my house and start from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> the ventilation isn't right. The soffit isn't right. <laughs> it's, I'm surprised that it's still there. <laughs> but uh, it is deteriorating, and it, uh, the house is only 35 or so years old, and I have a second roof on it, and... Um, but uh, there, there are a couple of things missing, I think. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I know that OSHA uh, had targeted 
uh, roofers, and I still can have an argument with them whether you really should wear a hard hat when you are on top of the roof. And, you know, if you're working on the ground, that's all right with me. <laughs> but I think OSHA is, you know, overprotective. And I said, hey, if we tell them to all wear hard hats, <laughs> at least we make sure that the guys, you know, who are on the bottom, on the ground, have a hard hat on, too. And I don't know, do they still enforce that, the, the hard hats on the roof? Well, we enforce it in-house. So. Yeah, well, hey, I- you may as well. You may as well, uh, yeah, just say, hey, is that, you know, if you make exceptions over there, say, oh, I thought it was there, I thought it was there. I, I, I know how that goes, well, like hey, with respirators and stuff like that, so, uh-uh. He had it, well, he, was up, uh, he took it off on the roof but forgot to put it on when he went back down. Yeah, you yeah, know, it, so. it, it, you, you just said it, exactly right. It happens, oh, yeah. yeah. Craig, were there any questions you had for David? I did not. I thought David's uh, explanation of the of the other side of what I do was just right on the mark because I see exactly what he was commenting on that it's not a question always of products as it is of installation when you see defects and that's the most important part of that. Well, gentlemen, I would like to thank all three of you for joining us here today on IAQ Radio. Our thanks to David Governo and Craig Suppo, and also to our technical host, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Of course, my thanks to the cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick, and uh, my co-host here, Cliff Slotnick, but most importantly, to our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.